What's up, Mets fans? Got a special episode coming at you today. We talked to Matt Eddy of Baseball America, friend of the podcast, in a couple of fantasy baseball leagues with James. Excited to uh, get talking to him. It's been a while since we brought him on. Yeah, Mark undersells him. Matt Eddy's editor-in-chief of Baseball America. I th- I'm pretty sure from conversations with him back in the day, Baseball America is the only job he's had as a professional human being. So he just lives, eats, breathes, everything prospect so mad legend friend of the show listener just great guest and like you guys will feel like the wild knowledge he exudes about the mets players in general and just minor league baseball and like ever-changing landscape of player development he's great Love having him on. Hope you guys like it. Yeah, quick housekeeping stuff, maybe just real quick. Again, like our episode schedule is a little bit all over the place just because we're currently trying to revamp everything back up since the big news of 2024 with the podcast. So I'm sure none of you are complaining that there's more content. Uh, Just keep an eye out for it. Remember to follow all our feeds. Remember to follow us on social media, Twitter, Instagram, TikTok, at MetsUp. Subscribe. The YouTube channel is now the MetsUp podcast. We are no longer on the New York Mets YouTube channel. We have our own. You'll see our logo. You'll see our last uploads on there if you want to see some video versions of that. And there might be some videos that are exclusive to YouTube as well. So make sure you are subscribed over there because some things just don't go on the podcast feed. Yep. And again, without further ado, Matt Eddie. What's up, Mets fans? Welcome back to another episode of the Mets Up Podcast. We now have a new champion of the most recurring guest on the Mets Up Podcast, taking over that title from Kodai Senga. They were tied at two. We've got Matt Eddy of Baseball America, friend of the podcast. Matt, thanks for coming on. How are we doing? Oh, hey, guys. Thanks for having me. Visit number three. Yeah, visit number three. Again, passing Kodai Senga. Maybe we'll make a little like mock, like funny graphic about that afterwards because coming week. <laughs> but Matt, first thing we want to do, just talk about where this mess system is right now. We know you guys dropped the Mets top 10 on Baseball America. I believe it was a few months ago now, one of the first ones you guys did release of the offseason. So walk us through that. Maybe you don't have to do the whole top 10, leave people something else to subscribe for, maybe the top five, talk about your favorites, maybe someone who rose, someone who fell, just a nice broad overlay of the system. Yeah, uh, our list came out in in November. Baseball America was able to publish all of its top 10s in the at the end of 2023 for the first time in one year. That was a a landmark for us uh with with the mets in particular going into the process i didn't know who the number one prospect would necessarily be but the organization was pretty clear that jet williams was their guy you know he he offers you know some up the middle upside some hitting ability speed so he was their pick you know and then the rest of the top 10 especially crowded near the top are a lot of the trade acquisitions you know drew gilbert luis sanhel acuna Ryan Clifford, but mo- it's in addition to those guys, it's a lot of players the Mets have drafted recently. Do you kind of see the system kind of a conversation? I want to like bring this whole thing to. Do you see the system as kind of more that's like building something as we kind of hoped and expected they would a few years ago, or do you see right now it's very much buoyed by these trades that have been made without this kind of like ample foundation we've been like kind of waiting and hoping for as the Mets have kind of overturn their player development and scouting regimes? I think it's a little both. I think the trades do elevate them into top 10 discussion among all farm systems, but they, they have hit on some draft picks. Notably, Jet Williams would be a, you know one of their biggest hits. They've continued to develop Ronnie Mauricio. However, he's obviously going to have a, a lost season. Bad timing on, his, on, on that injury there. But I would say it's a little bit of both. With Jet Williams specifically, uh, he's been someone that's been, I feel like, flying up. I know he had a lot of like hype around the draft of just guys like loved his makeup. They loved what he was able to do. And now we've started 
to see him really perform at the minor league level. Do you think that there's a shot that Jet Williams could be a guy that maybe sneaks up into the major league level at some point next year with how he rose last season? It's possible. Uh, probably a lower probability because he's, I think he's heading under his age 20 season. It's, it's rare for that to happen, but probably becoming increasingly less rare for that to happen. I think um, he, he would really have to dominate double A, triple A for that to be a possibility. What do you see as Jet Williams more most likely home as a fielder in the major leagues? We've seen him play a lot of shortstop in the major leagues. That's taken up by Francisco Lindor long-term at the Mets. We've seen him play some center field. That's a position the Mets seem to be a little looser on this year compared to last year with the acquisition of Harrison Bather, David Stern saying they're well, they're comfortable with Brandon Moe in a corner, or do you see him as somewhere else, maybe on the diamond? Does he hit enough for a corner? Does he have an arm enough for thirds? Is he more likely a second baseman? Where do you see that evaluation? I think there's a split camp there. I think, um, I probably think center field is most likely. You know, take advantage of the speed, athletic ability he, he throws pretty well obviously as a middle infielder he he played a lot of center in high school and on the showcase circuit and was somewhat unrefined as a defensive shortstop you know for a first round guy it would not i think it's probably most likely center field maybe second base if that's a need he hasn't played that yet as a pro but the mets think that he can take to that i think another guy too that People are probably wondering where he's going to play. Is going to be Luis Angel Acuna. Similarly, middle infield guy, center field. Where do you see someone like him maybe projecting for the future? Yeah, he's a stronger defensive player right now. So I think second base is a pretty safe projection for him if he hits. You know, I don't don't expect him to be like a top of the order, you know, impact hitter. But I think he's he can hit well enough to to play. Both of those players definitely find themselves on the shorter side, as does Drew Gilbert. Jet definitely being the smallest of all of them. Especially thinking about center field, a position that you need so much range and like theoretically speed, which could come from length and a stride. Is there any genuine limitations for these players based on their height, even though as we are seeing many more kind of shorter players, some people call them short kings, making their way up prospect rankings and MLB rosters the last few years? Yeah, that is really interesting. I hadn't thought of the, the stride length in the outfield. Um I'd have to look at the shortest major league center fielders. I think it, I think it's becoming increasingly more common. Like I, I remember when Adam Eaton was coming up as a prospect, he was disregarded a little bit because he was short. Um, but you know, obviously that didn't prove to be a problem. I don't think it's an organizational focus, but I do think they see the positive attributes of it. You know, smaller, um, shorter limbs, helping with um, uh, the length of swing and such i know that the last time that we had you on because it's been a while since you've been back on the podcast so we're happy to have you back we were talking about prospects like brett Beatty, francisco alvarez a lot of guys that we're seeing at the major league level right now and brett Beatty is quite the hot you know topic amongst mets fans about playing third base what's he actually going to look like and he relatively has been disappointing so far from what we have seen i don't think there's any way around it when we spoke last, we were all very high on him. You particularly were a big fan of what he was able to do at the plate offensively. Do you still have that same hope of Brett Beatty? Yes, overall. Though obviously with what we saw in 2023, the hope is dimmed a bit. I think, you know, getting him, you know, to, to meet the ball more up front and pull up for power, he's always had that easy oppo power. But I think for him to reach the ultimate upside that he possesses, I think that's going to be a requisite. And, you know, the defensive home is also a question because he has not, establish himself as a major league third baseman at this time we we like to preach patience in this podcast especially with young players in general doing it with Bailey right now as an evaluator at what point in a player's 
even brief major league career, do you have to start to look differently at how they were viewed as a prospect? Spady right now is about 400, 430 played appearances. Is it more about signaling certain statistics? Is it more about playing times? More about makeup? Like where? I know it's definitely going to be subjective by the player, but where does that line start to be drawn to where you have to reevaluate your own evaluation? Given Beatty's prospect pedigree, I would give him the entire 2024 season to see where you're at. He's, he is a player who historically has struggled at initial levels before kind of finding his stride. And that's what we saw last year. Started strong, slumped, triple A dominated and came back up and was okay. But I think, I think 2024, a full season of PAs will tell us a lot about Beatty's upside. Talking about how Beatty was dominating at triple A. We've seen this now happen with a lot of prospects. It feels like recently that able to dominate triple A the major league level come up. There's a lot of difficulty. Is there just a bigger gap than we're we've been accustomed to between AAA and major league baseball right now, where there's like just kind of not much going on at the AAA level? Yes, for sure. Uh, the the quality of pitching in AAA is probably as bad as I can remember it. So I, it's, it's tough to read a lot into the offensive statistics. And then in 2023, the automated ball strike system just wreaked havoc. Walk, the walk rate at AAA was something like 13%. It was just insanity. And by the same token, it's hard to evaluate both pitchers and hitters in that kind of a context. Did you think by that token it made, this might be a stupid question, but it made pitcher-hitter evaluations more difficult, especially at that level? Yes. Yeah. Because in particular, <laughs> in particular, the top three quadrants of the, you know, the nine boxes strike zone, called strikes were difficult to get in the top three. So any pitcher who would ride a fastball up would have a hard time getting a called strike on that pitch. And batters would adjust to that, right? And then as you see umpires, you get also get a sense for the umpire strike zone. So you can kind of take a, an extra advantage if you're a hitter, if you know what the umpire is likely to call. Everybody, I feel like in the Mets world, was freaking out last year so much about the trade deadline and getting pitchers. And we didn't get any pitchers. So in terms of like some guys that maybe could make their way to the major league level from the Mets farm system, which pitchers are you most excited about right now? Yeah, uh, Christian Scott would be the most exciting arm for me. Just the, the level of pitchability starter traits he has. He's got the, he seems to have this acumen where he can really take to instruction and new ideas. You know, he, he changed his repertoire in pro ball. He's you know good at holding runners for a guy who was mostly a reliever in college. It's, it's pretty remarkable how far he's come. Uh, so he would be number one. And some in the organization see him as a number three starter. Uh, obviously, he has not proven the durability of workload quite yet, but we'll see this year. And then Mike Mike Vazel and um, Blade Tidwell are probably two of the other arms I would be looking at as major uh, test cases for Mets pitching development this season. Pitcher I'm really intrigued by in the Mets system is Dominic Hamill right now because he's someone who just in terms of like a single pitch, his breaking ball is, it just seems special. Mark and I got a chance to watch him up close last year in the double uh, A, the Eastern League semifinal match. And he just, he completely dominated a, a Somerset Patriots lineup that had Ben Rice in it. It had um, Spencer Jones. He, it was unhittable for, I think, eight eight innings on the mound or seven and a third, seven and two thirds. He's someone that you see as a major league starter. Is he more in the reliever line? Like, or is he someone that could even develop and grow into that role this upcoming year? Yeah. Um, Probably. You know, I think most evaluators would have him as back of the rotation, swingman type of upside, but he does have a lot of starter traits. And as you mentioned, like he's he's pretty platoon neutral, even with his repertoire, which you wouldn't necessarily expect. So there's, there's something to to his approach that works against both sides that could make him you know, sneaky good as a major league starter. Out of all those guys too, we were talking a lot about Christian Scott and Blade Tidwell before. We've read and spoke to you about privately that 
allegedly both of them underwent massive changes in the repertoire since being drafted by the Mets just a few years ago. You mentioned that Scott had this kind of acumen to take a few instructions and then put that into practice. Do you see that as something that is more on where Mets pitching development has gone in the last few years or more of something that's specifically on those two's just strengths as a prospect? An element is, uh, frankly, the way Florida uses pitchers, emphasizing sinkers and, and sliders and really fastballs above all. Like, So changing the way Christian Scott attacked hitters for more of a pro approach was, was going to, to bear fruit. And it might even with Brandon Sprout, who they drafted last year. So that's something to keep an eye on if, they, if his pitch mix and usage evolves in pro ball. And with Tidwell, I just don't think he needed to throw a changeup very much in the SEC. So finding the, the split grip that worked for him and able to really get that, that late action on the pitch has, has elevated his stock. With him, obviously, uh, strike throwing has been a major challenge and could be an impediment to starting if he's not able to clear that up. You uh, spoke about the draft and how you know Br- Brandon Spro was a guy that the Mets were able to take again in the draft, a guy from Florida. What players from the draft last year from the Mets uh, are some of your favorites right now in their system? Yeah, uh, you know, the first rounder, Colin Houck, obviously. Uh, Brandon Sprout, the second rounder. Well, I like both those picks. The The sneaky player that the Mets are excited about is Nolan McLean, the Oklahoma State two-way player as a DH uh, closer. He is very unproven as a strike thrower and as any kind of a starting pitcher in college, but they are very encouraged by what they saw in um, off-season labs. I think there's a lot of raw material to work with. Just a matter of getting him to a starter workload and getting him to throw strikes. Is there anything there that you saw that you can disclose, either radar gun or certain types of pitches that have good properties, maybe even just as a DH2, his exit velocities? I know he's a big, big, strong kid, so is anything there that data-wise we can glean? Yeah, average is 95, easy motion um, up to 98. Getting getting him on a, on a routine should help because he hasn't really had a starter routine ever because he's been two-way and, and bullpen. High spin slider up to 88. Makings of, of a changeup that there obviously will be a focus if they want to keep him as a starter this year. I think there's there's an expectation that he's one of the quickest to the majors guys from this track class. Is that more of a, a hard slider that's like kind of like a gyro, like a shoot down, or does that have any like sweep on it? Uh, two-plane, yeah, mid-80s, two-plane. Yeah. Wow, that's pretty good. <laughs> uh, <laughs> I mean, a two-plane slider just to speak on like it moves two planes so it's moving downward and is moving with the arm action of the pitch as opposed to i asked matt a gyro slider because those are usually those pitches that kind of seem more colorish and they can be thrown harder because they move less we talk about this sometimes the ball like falls over itself has more change up action with slider spin but that hard of a slider with that kind of two plane action is it's kind of fascinating and then i wanted to ask another question about coming with the Mets draft last year the big story with the Mets draft now this most recent draft again after the lottery is that the Mets pick was to be pushed backwards because of their luxury tax penalties. Did you see anything that you can glean or anything different from either their strategy, other teams around the league, like the Padres or the Yankees, or I believe last year also, no, just the Padres and Yankees, who are moving back, losing part of their bonus pool, but still able to possibly stockpile talent through the draft? Yeah, it's tough. I, I think these new CBT penals, penalties have a lot of teeth. Um, I don't think it impacted the Mets tremendously because how would have been a fine pick even 10 spots earlier. He kind of slipped down the board a little bit. I, I think a larger strategy adjustment teams have made is just focusing on college pitchers because we have this condensed minor league environment, which is actually going to become more condensed this season when they go to 165 total domestic players. So you have fewer players 
to fill the same amount of innings. So therefore you need more pitchers who are just ready to go and give you as many innings as they can. So that that has shifted for all organizations, including the Mets and the draft. Do you think you've seen that now that's been going on with this condensed system for a few years now across the league? Is that the reason that we're seeing both players get to the league more quickly? And then when those players get to the league, I think especially on the hitting side, I mean, just looking across that a lot of players come to the league really ready to rip. Just do you think that enhances their development and makes them more ready when they arrive? I think I think that the need to find challenges for some of these young, talented hitters has has sped up development timelines for sure. I think that's, and many of them have proven ready. I think that's that's a testament to, you know, instruction and the data that wasn't available even 10 years ago. But yeah. I know with Colin Houck last year, the big conversation about him was that he did drop down to where the Mets were at. Was there really any reason outside of money for that? Was there is there anything that people were seeing that made him drop down? Because it felt like all the mock drafts and all the hype was kind of placing him in like that top 10 to 15 range. Yeah, I think with him, I think it's, the potential that there's no separating tool that he's just like a 50 to 55 across the board so you're looking at an everyday second or third baseman who doesn't doesn't put up loud numbers but has you know high makeup high athleticism a chance to be a winning player despite not having like outstanding raw tools is there a level of awkwardness with a guy like Sprout who was drafted by the Mets rebuff them and then now comes back into the organization with significantly less leverage? You know, I don't know specifically. I know what's interesting about Spro is that McLean also was an unsigned second rounder by the Orioles. So the Mets have two of these guys. McLean was a um, eligible sophomore, so he wasn't he hadn't used four years of eligibility. But it is kind of an interesting footnote to this draft class. With this draft class uh, like coming up, I know it's probably not necessarily like easy, but what what are like the big, is there a plethora of pitching in this draft class? Is there better high school hitters? Like what are we looking at right now? This draft class projects to be pretty weak overall, um, especially on the pitching side. So this might be one to uh, shoot the moon on some, some prep hitters <laughs> early anyway, because you're going to need to come back with pitchers later. The guys who pop up during the season with that i want to now bring it back from like the from draft talk back to met stuff it's funny that we've gone through like what 20 minutes almost of talking about mets prospects and we haven't mentioned a word about francisco alvarez who had 25 homers as a 21 year old last year did he do enough as a rookie in offensively defensively makeup attitude by language everything to kind of drive home the ideas that you have told us in this podcast before that he does have the chance to be that kind of like special game breaker type of player. Oh yeah. I, I was very impressed with him. Like just as much what he was doing on the side, like you're talking about, like doing interviews in English, uh, really developing a rapport with, with pitchers and being a, a better framer than anybody could expect. You know, there's drawbacks. Obviously he tanked really bad in the second half. He was probably worn down. Uh, the throwing needs work. But I think there's just so much upside there, especially with the bat. What about Mark Vientos, a guy who's going to be probably fighting for one of the last couple spots on the roster going into the season? Wasn't particularly impressed with what we saw last year, uh, especially on the defensive side. It's very hard to project where or if he'll ever play the field. Uh, what are you thinking about him going into the season? Yeah, he's got a tough road because he's um, probably limited to first base. Uh, so he has to mash and... Uh, you know, I know at least reputation-wise, he was struggled a little bit with right-on-right -right spin. So we'll see if he can correct that. But obviously, the raw power measures up with probably anybody except for Alvarez among the young up-and-coming players. Back to the trade deadline last season, the Mets acquired Drew Gilbert, Luis Angel Acuna, and Ryan Clifford as as the big names, as well as Jeremy Rodriguez in the Tommy Pham trade and Marco Vargas. 
and Marco Vargas and Ronald Hernandez. Yes. Of those prospects, not necessarily which one is the best right now, or which one you think has the highest ceiling, but which was your favorite, maybe even just from an acquisitional cost standpoint than what they are now, the changes they've even made already in the Mets system. Yeah. I like, um, I like Gilbert for probability, but I think for creativity, I like the Jeremy Rodriguez trade. Yes. Um, <laughs> you know, being able to get who was the, the Diamondbacks top signee who was had an outstanding debut in the DSL, able to get him and get creative with, they were, you know, paying down like half a fan's contract to acquire a better talent. I think that's a good sign for the future as well, especially as we look at some of these short-term deals they've signed this off season, we could get, you know, repeats of this at, at this upcoming trade deadline. If the season goes south, what about Rodriguez? Do you like um, hitterish, good athlete, probably a second baseman, um, but a chance to be a first division guy. Uh, at this point, I mean, he, he started the season at sixteen. He's super young. Um, at this point, he's got to hit the ball harder, but he's got a lot of the the swing decisions and the the hitter traits that you like to see. It's just like crazy to think, like when you said sixteen, it's like wow, that yeah. guy's born in like <laughs> two thousand what seven six. Like yeah. it's like oh my god, like. <laughs> The Met, the Mets were were blowing the division that year. Like <laughs> he, doesn't, he doesn't even know. He doesn't have that baggage. <laughs> no. When you say something like hitherish, like a scouting term, can you tell listeners what what that means? Even though like if it's, there's a feeling around that word, but like when you say yeah. hitherish, like what are, like the three traits below it? Let's see. Uh, good rhythm, swings and strikes, uh, doesn't chase, can kind of hit the ball where it's pitched when needed, and he's not a guy who's obviously selling out for power <laughs> based on his exit velos. So yeah, attributes like that. Is it just one of those things like where it's like instinctually he just acts yeah. like a hitter? That that's the thing. It's like major league teams through time have have demonstrated that they can identify future major leaguers at a very young age, hitters, sixteen, seventeen, eighteen. They're, they have a very strong track record with those types of players. Pitchers, no chance. But <laughs> hitters. So when you get a young guy who impresses scouts at that age. I take that as a good sign. When you say that he still has to get up his exit velocities, but that he's also a 16, 17-year-old, where where are those benchmarks for literal teenager exit velocity? Are you guys pulling that from what you take from high school data, or is there something that's more you expect more from these players who are already professional? Where where are those benchmarks, and how much room do you give them for legit physical maturation? I don't know exactly where the line is. I, I would have to look that up. I think at that age, which what, I, what I'm really zeroing in on is – how evaluators, how convinced are they that this player can hit or will hit? Because obviously at a 16, like the present hit tool in the major leagues would be like a negative one. But I mean, <laughs> but you know, you're, you're kind of placing your faith in those evals. With Ryan Clifford, I know a favorite of James last year. Uh, he kind of struggled a little bit when he went to Brooklyn and we know about, you know, how lefties in particular in that ballpark tend to struggle because you are hitting into the into the ocean. It's <laughs> a very, very difficult ballpark to hit in regardless if you're a lefty. And then you add in the uh, the wind from the waves coming. It's not very easy. Clifford's outlook going forward. He was someone who's kind of had a little bit of hype because of that hit tool. Uh, anything mm -hmm. changed with him? I don't think so. I think um, he's a tough player to evaluate on the surface numbers just because he went from Asheville to Brooklyn. <laughs> Probably one of the more severe high A switchups that you'll see. You know, the bat of all data was good. He's, you know, the power production was good. 24 homers as a teenager. That's a, that's a good total. I think what he does at double A when he reaches it this year will be a lot more telling. You mentioned very early in his interview about um, Luis Angel Acuna's ceiling as a hitter. And I feel like that's something that's very contentious right now in both Mets and prospect circles, mostly probably because of his last name. And then secondly, <laughs> because of the player who we just happened to be traded for. It's a lot to stand up to as a, as a young baseball player. 
we see him take batting practice and he sometimes can just hit the shit out of the ball. Like he'll take a hack, even sometimes in a game when he gets a hanger, he hits towering home runs. You can't even believe, especially from his size. So where is that game power lacking and how hard or easy or what kind of changes need to happen for a player, not even Acuna specifically to tap into more of what's raw. Yeah. He's one of the, the borderline players, right? Where, where he does have the good raw power. But for him to be an effective major leaguer, he's probably not. Probably his best version is not selling out for that all the time. Um, and in practice, he does tend to go the other way and, and hit the ball on the ground to, you know, as, as the old maxim is to, to take advantage of his speed. Um, so I think the the best version of him is probably someone who takes his shots. Obviously, takes his a swing early in counts, but is more more inclined to try to work his way on base. And you also said in a player evaluation from the trade that he's like, you like Drew Gilbert the most based on probability, which I'm sure a lot of fans will hear be like, what, what the hell? But <laughs> what makes you think that he's so, uh, he has just less of a range of outcomes and is more of a certain major leaguer than these other players acquired. He has the, the attributes that, you know, he's got the, the IQ the makeup, the energy and the tools of a, of a winning player. I think you know, and I don't know that he necessarily has a plus tool. Uh, you, I think you would look at him and say he's 50s across the board, but he's but he's but he's versatile. He can play any outfield position. He throws well as, as a former pitcher. You know, his on base ability might be his best attribute, and there might be some overlap to like a Brandon Nimmo coming up in terms of what he does well. This is something like we like to say, and I'm sure it's not uh, a term that a lot of scouting or evaluators use, but like. Drew Gilbert's got a little dog in him. Like, he's just kind of that guy. Like, he seems like he's a leader. He's got a lot of fire. Is that – does that play into how people perceive a prospect? Oh, yeah. Yeah, you, you definitely want the players who, who who just want it, you know. I, I think it's a, an important separator when we're talking about the best of the best. It feels like he has that. It feels like, again, we went to that semifinal game last year with the Binghamton Met, the Rumble Ponies, and the Patriots, and you felt that him, Jet, and Acuna, and Hamill, like, kind of together were had this little – had this mm-hmm. little like walk in their step. Is there something about these players having this exposure, playing together and playing at a high level before they reach the major league? Is that something that we can, that should be, and maybe is tracked in a way that can create the better likelihood of being better major leaguers? I think there's something to it. There, there is a lot of correlation between organizations that win in the minor leagues, like at all levels and in the major leagues, right? It's not one-to-one obviously, but there is some correlation there. So it, it is encouraging to see groups of players rise and, and master each level. And, and, you know, we'll see if it bears fruit in the major leagues, but I think it's a good start at double A team. One prospect we haven't spoke about yet, uh, former first round pick by the Mets, Kevin Parada. I think he came in at number 10 on Baseball America's list. And he's someone who I think draft time had a lot of hype. And then he obviously dropped down to the Mets. And it seems like he's been a little underwhelming thus far. Uh, what are we looking at with Kevin Parada moving forward right now? A tough year. I ended up giving him giving him a mulligan because he did play well for stretches at Brooklyn. Kind of had an injury late and then struggled with double A. But you know, he's either got to improve his hitting or he's got to improve his ability to stay behind the plate or his probability to stay behind the plate. It's hard to see him in the current version uh, being a major leaguer of note. When you say in the current version, what? And specifically, like his hitting and his fielding, like this very broad stuff. What does, what are his weaknesses right now as a prospect, and what are things that can kind of elevate his status? The arm is the is the biggest issue. He allows a, a ton of stolen base attempts at, at a high success rate of uh, successful stolen bases. Doesn't get into position very well. Framing high, higher pitches needs work. The hitting was okay at times. He's got a good disciplined approach. I think there was more 
miss, even on pitches in the zone, than expected. I think there's more rawness than expected just for this hitting overall. I think there's some teams that would still go like five future hit and power on him. So he's not like a lost cause. He just if he, if he can tweak and get to where he was two years ago. I've got more of a question just for you in general. We've been naming prospects for 30 minutes and you're able to just like rattle off like instantly, like just stuff about all these guys. How do you even keep track or how do you even like have enough time to watch or evaluate all these kinds of players? <laughs> well, I did. I, re I read my uh, chapter again before I did this interview. <laughs> that helps. And it's kind of fresh in mind because I wrote it in December. So I was able to, <laughs> to, to call back to a lot of that. Um, yeah, it's just a lot of conversations with people um, all season long, just kind of thinking about where players fit in an overall context. It's even fun having these conversations with you because it feels like so second nature and like to feel the lingo coming out in the way you talk about these players and things you can rattle off about them. It's great. And I love every time you come on. We all have it's a nice, funny little group chat. We talk somewhat often about this stuff as much as we can. But now just like zoom out a little bit and talk about the Mets the Mets like organization as a whole in terms of minor leagues player development. They made two pretty significant hires earlier this offseason in Chris Gross to be the VP of amateur scouting and Andy Green to be, I don't remember his actual title, but I think it was also a VP of player development. What do you know? Or what have you heard about those two guys? And where do you think they fit into this Mets puzzle of player development? Yes, uh, Gross has a, tr a tremendous reputation around the game so that was a, an exciting for the organization to have him running the drafts i think that will be i think that will be good for the organization i, I know less about green just because he's been a, like a minor league manager um briefly a major league manager i believe if i'm not mistaken good reputation obviously because he was um had a prominent role with the cubs before he was hired uh, but yeah we'll, we'll look forward to seeing what he can do uh with the farm system this year. Has the addition of Eric Yeagers to the Mets farm system in the pitching lab, has that been something that evaluators have taken note of as like, he might have a little something going on here? I think so. I think we've seen pitchers, you know, broaden their repertoires is the number one thing that we've seen from most of the emerging Mets pitching prospects. Because in most cases, it's not guys who were like, you know, first round picks or, or, or even necessarily even prominent um, college pitchers, but you know Christian Scott, and then they're going to try to get Nolan McLean to kind of take that route of, as a college reliever to pro starter. And if that's successful, that will definitely be a, a major feather in his hat. I remember, I think from last year's draft, another reliever they're trying to make a starter, Brandon Banks, who also had the same kind of crazy underlying pitch data. So, if you is there just a general? And it, it could be no. Like we're not we're not looking for a glazed answer here. Like I remember a few years ago, we were talking about the fact that Mets were putting so much into making this player development like their machine that was going to push the organization forward. And you've seen that we've heard that top down now for the last year, especially with the trade deadline, how serious they were about building up the minor leagues and not selling out these prospects this offseason. Are they? Does it feel like they? could be doing enough now to start putting themselves in the conversations with some of these teams that have these player development machines? Possible. I know for certain they have integrated player development more into the draft decision process, bringing um, PD into the room, so to speak, and identifying players. Yes, we can develop this type of player. So let's draft this guy instead of this guy, because we think we can develop these attributes. I know that's a, that's a big positive step they've taken lately. And I would obviously expect things like that to continue under uh, David Stearns. Is that something that not all organizations do? <laughs> Sounds second nature. It, it sounded like it was somewhat novel to the Mets, like something introduced under Epler in that scouting department. So 
<laughs> a little concerning that uh, player development wasn't involved in the draft process before. Yeah, so here, take some guys. Enjoy. What? <laughs> we didn't know the draft was today. Otherwise, now bring it back to the Mets system in general. Outside of the top 10, are there any sleepers in the system, players that you can see getting into this top 10 next year, maybe even just touching, caressing, kissing up against your top 100 as it comes out? Who is Who could be the riser in this system? Who should fans be aware of heading into 2024? Yeah, I'm excited to see what Spro and McLean can do. I'm excited to see what Jeremy Rodriguez can do. The, the Florida Complex League shortstop, Jesus Baez, might be one who slept on a little bit because he does have raw ability, just had poor surface stats this year um, or in 2023. But he's someone who has the attributes to, to be an impact power hitter in particular. And play and stay on the infield, probably at third base. He'd be one I'd, I'd be watching as well, in addition to those other three. I feel like Mets fans are clamoring for a big trade, and that would probably involve giving up some prospects. And one of the names that I feel like we talked about probably a lot the last time we spoke was Alex Ramirez, and someone that not really getting that same kind of love that he was a couple seasons ago. Uh, what was the reason for that? Is it just not really seeing that growth from him? Yeah, I think, you know, the. The, the defense, the arm, the speed have all developed well. And when he's putting in maximum effort, he's he's very strong in those categories. The hitting has always been the potential stumbling block. He's got unusual swing mechanics. That, so they're trying to find the balance between what he wants to do and then what will work. So there's a level of comfort and production. The Mets didn't get any production in 2023. He had a, a bad year in high A. But, you know, he's, he's got talent, and if he takes to the instruction, there's a chance he could have a, a rebound season. Does it act as a, some kind of organizational impediment to have a high A team like the Mets have where you just know that offense is going to be completely suppressed and pitching is going to be something that's relatively easy to come by? Yeah, a lot of the Northeast teams have that, where you have these very power-suppressing parks in the minor leagues, especially the lower levels. Uh, and then it's the opposite for a lot of the West teams, where it's a lot of bombs away in the low levels. It's, it's, a, it's a strange setup. Um I think it helps because they, you know, it allows pitchers to build confidence and hitters probably don't get into as many bad habits as they would in like a homer friendly park. I think overall it's good. Is there a world where these kind of power suppressing environments in on the East kind of become viewed similarly as the, the power potent parks in the at West and the PCL where we see a lot of teams, especially the Mariners, just routinely have their pitchers completely skip AAA because there's no nothing good to be done there. Is there is that level too important? high A, the jump from low A to high A, double A? Or is there a world at some point where we start seeing teams move their players from low A straight to double A to avoid this kind of mental gymnastics the players have to go through when they have nine homers in 90 games when they used to have 25? Uh, I don't think they would do that with high A just because it's an important step. I think because the quality of play at low A has gotten worse, frankly. It's now more equivalent to like what the Penn League used to be in terms of experience and, and ability and such. But I, I, yeah, I think AAA is going to continue to be skipped with more regularity, similar to what the Mariners did. And then I think just last question before I want to ask you like one or two things just about other baseball stuff, dynasty baseball stuff, so people can tune out for that at the end. But in terms of the Mets system right now, very vaguely, very broadly, what would you say are the strongest positional groups in terms of either ability to help the major leagues or just in the system in general? And where would you say the system right now has its biggest gaps? Infield is definitely the strongest group for the Mets. It seems to be a focus for them internationally, as it is for a lot of teams, and in the draft. So you, so and that low-way group is going to be very interesting this year with Colin Hauk, uh, Marco Vargas, Jesus Baez. It's going to be a good group there. Weaknesses, left-handed pitching has been a constant weakness for the system. They don't really have a left-hander of note right now. 
who was prospect eligible. I don't know if that was a big thing with the Brewers, when Stearns was with the Brewers, if they were, I don't think they overvalue left-handers. I will say, I feel like they were the team more so than anybody would like take flyers on like a Hobie Milner or like try out like pitchers like that. And they tend to be left-handed and like, they loved Brent Suter forever, and he's a guy yep. who obviously, like prospect-wise, I'm sure wasn't very exciting because he throws like 83. So <laughs> it probably, I'm I'm going to assume that they didn't really value, and they just kind of stumbled into Josh Hader a little bit too. Yeah, Hader was part of a, a trade with the Astros. I forget yeah. exactly, but yeah, I think it was Carlos Gomez actually. <laughs> might have been. Yeah, <laughs> is that is that a piece of development that sometimes it might take lefties a little longer than righties, and pitching even takes most guys longer than significantly longer than hitters anyway. Uh, traditionally, yes, I think there is some truth to that to that axiom maybe maybe less so than it used to be just because it's it's more about fastball and, and breaking pitch rather than having that dominant changeup that used to be the the defining characteristic of the left-handed starter it's more of a field more more of a field pitch that might take time to develop but yeah you're talking about changeup and that being the pitch is actually remember, reminded me of something else jose budo someone that i think we all privately have expressed some optimism for as he, he a guy is, he goes through the minor league system, kind of gets up to the major leagues, gets his heart, goes back down, gets up, goes back down. Now gets up again and sees, seems different. Do we, is it just recency bias to believe that he actually now has a little bit more ceiling in helium that we ever thought? Or is there tangible changes that have happened with him? Uh, that's, yeah, he's another player who had that AAA major league um, <laughs> divide. He's a tough player to evaluate. But like you're saying, the way he finished the year was very encouraging that there's some role for him. You know, it's, it's it's hard to see a three times through the lineup role based on his repertoire, but I think there is a role for him who, you know, and, and he showed what he was capable of at his best in 2023. And that three times through the lineup thing, Mark and I have talked about that a lot in the show last week, and I'm probably going to talk about more going forward. The Brewers took them a very long time to give young pitchers the third time through the order. We saw Freddie Peralta, Brandon Woodruff, and Corbin Burns, three, three guys who could all be considered top 15 pitchers now when healthy, if not better all take about a full year if not more in the case of especially burns and peralta to actually get that third time is that something that you think is a positive for pitchers in player development where like you can kind of bite off your chunks more slowly rather than just be simply thrown to the fire is that just player by player team by team yeah i love i love that approach i think there's a lot of merit to working pitchers into a role by having them take you know long reliever it used to be called like and it was kind of i mean it's a throwback approach that managers used to do it all the time You'd work in the young pitcher as a reliever when he was a rookie and, and build up his confidence, build up his stamina. Yeah, it worked for Chris Sale. Didn't work for Jabba Chamberlain. I remember that one specifically <laughs> where they were like, wow, this guy's a lights out reliever. We have a dilemma here. Let's make him a starter again. And he was never the same. So yeah, it seems like there's like now this in between again of like understanding like we're just going to be trying to stretch these guys out and not really mess with them as much yeah it didn't work didn't work for henry mejia either but we will we'll, we'll always, we'll always give that one a shot when you have that live uh, on. One, one of my most regrettable number one rankings i think he was number one for us <laughs> twice <laughs> it speaks I, to the state of the system but I'll, I'll, I'll use that as my defense totally and also i think henry mejia got another question here for the mets last year one of three teams in the whole league not to throw a pitch over 100 miles an hour is there a flamethrower in the system that is at least could be a major leaguer at some point. Do they have a guy down there who's like, oh yeah, he's 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 cooking with gas. Ramon Gomez did did touch a hundred. Ramon Gomez, had, all right. And then he had, and then he had TJ. So great. All right. Well, <laughs> but he but he is a dude. He is a dude. He is a prospect. So okay, we'll take a dude. Hopefully, hopefully we see him in flashes at the end of this season, and hopefully his stuff comes back. Matt, you are a Mets fan. This is a Mets podcast, and everybody's talking about this off season is just it's it's either. The greatest offseason ever, or it's a failure. There's no in between. How are you feeling as a Mets fan about it? Okay, 
I like I like the discipline. I, I like I like frankly the new approach. You know, none of the contracts they sign impacts them in the draft or you know commits them long term. So I think there's it gives them a lot of flexibility. Uh, you guys have mentioned, and it's true that the forty man was, was shallow. So adding some forty five and fifty grade players. As value. And just for people at home, again, that's on the, the scouting scale of 20 to 80. So once you get to 50, that's like you're a trusted regular, but you're not spectacular. 45 is more of a tweener, platooner. And the Mets just, again, simply lacked a lot of these guys on the upper levels of the minors and the fringe of their roster. Like, but like that lineup post trade deadline last year was, yeah, was, was, was an indictment on the organization depth. So this yeah. is. This helps address that lineup, I think, and the bullpen, right? Between Rafael Ortega, like, and pulling in a guy like Phil Bickford, just. It was a Trevor lot. Was, yeah, Trevor got Trevor got nothing. But he actually, Trevor got actually had wildly good results the second half of the year. But just it looked, it didn't look pretty. It was just a lot of colored sinkers and fastballs. Which again, it's just it's bizarre that this team with all they've they had invested the last few years like could totally lacked in AAA. And if you felt that, and then you're like, oh, now it's really obvious. Yes. Hmm. But the one the one silver lining is that DJ Stewart might be a keeper. Yes, we yeah. love DJ. I think DJ Stewart is a keeper. I'm gonna. <laughs> I'm in a best ball draft right now. My first one. I'm like, I'm. He's so circled in like the 35th round. Like I can't wait. <laughs> I can't wait to take him and be able to throw him into one of my three utility spots. But I want to ask you quick. Last couple two minutes here. You know, Matt's an avid player, dynasty player. We're in a couple of dynasty leagues together where he finishes much higher than me usually in the standings. But this year, time of year is the uh, FYPD drafts. That's the first year player. So your dynasty leagues where you go back through last year's draft international class. It's very top-heavy this year between Langford, Cruz, and Yoshinobu Yamamoto, and even maybe someone like Max Clark, who I think is kind of wedging himself into that top discussion. But outside of those very obvious blue chippers, is there a player that seems like they could be a guy who becomes like a top 20, 25 prospect in the near future? Yeah, Jenkins is the obvious one, um, the super talented, tooled out um, North Carolina prep outfielder. Great swing, good, good physicality. I like him, and I like... Mariners shortstop Colt Emerson. Colt Emerson, yeah, I know the Mariners had a fantastic draft. Yeah, they did. If you're if you're looking upside, those would be my two favorites. I love Cole Young last year too, and he had insane mm-hmm. results in his first professional year. He'd like walks same walks and strikeouts. He's good too, but the way the um, scouts are talking about Emerson is at a, a tier higher than Young, mm-hmm. so I'm really okay. interested in him. Good to know from the card side as well for me. Mm-hmm. <laughs> Get on it, <laughs> getting it all over Colt Emerson there, <laughs> Matt. As always, thank you so much for coming on the podcast. The first three-time guest of the Mets Stub podcast. Glad to have you back. Glad to be able to talk some prospects with you. Let everybody at home know where they can find your stuff as well as plug in Baseball America. Yeah, BaseballAmerica.com. I'm on X Twitter at uh, Matt Eddie BA. Great. Thanks so much, Matt. Appreciate it as always. And uh, thank you. See you soon. Thanks, guys.